Melt presents The Struggle is Real, where champions from the business of sports and entertainment today lay the foundation for the future changemakers of tomorrow. Welcome to The Struggle is Real, presented by Melt. I'm your host, Adam Schick. When people think about jobs in sports marketing, they likely focus on strategic positions with major teams or league offices. What they might not consider are the variety of ways you can touch the business. And on today's show, we'll help stretch that definition into the realm of both law and high school sports by talking to Bruce Siegel from Learfield and John Newby from Varsity Brands. To get things started, let's look at the legal side of sports, and specifically sports licensing. Given what a lucrative business it's become, it's hard to believe how recently that you could sell items like college-branded shirts and hats without having to pay the universities themselves. But that changed in a major way thanks to the creation of the Collegiate Licensing Company back in the early 80s, and Bruce Siegel was there for the dawn of this mega-industry. As Melt's Director of Public Relations and Community Affairs Mark Harmon and I found out from our conversation with Bruce, Lawyers play a huge role in collegiate sports, especially when it comes to protecting the intellectual property of the schools. Now the senior counsel for Learfield Licensing, Bruce took us back to his early days as an Alabama fanatic and explained the influence that had on his career. I kind of, you know, grew up and with Alabama football, you know, from my youth as a Boy Scout, you know, selling peanuts and Cracker Jacks at the stadium to support the, the troop um, while my father was up in the radio booth as a, a broadcaster of Alabama football games um, with Joe Namath and, and Bear Bryant, you know, down on the field, you know, making history. Um, it was, I suppose, in, in my blood, you know, much of my family, uncles, all went to Alabama. So it was... Um, it was uh, a natural thing for, for me to, to, to roll into. Bruce, before we get into the legal aspects of, of your work, I got to ask you, what kind of larger-than-life figure was Bear Bryant? Because you had an opportunity to be up close and personal as a young guy. It was just an incredible experience. I, um, on my desk, I've got a, a photograph of uh, myself, an 18-year-old version of myself, um, taken with the bear, with um, the sports reporter at Channel 33 at the time, and a couple of other people. And I, I just look at that and, and pinch myself. Um, it was an incredible experience to have had the opportunity to, to be around Coach Bryant. He was always you know, a, a perfect gentleman, you know, whether it was interviewing Coach Bryant after a big victory um, or interviewing Coach Bryant after a bitter loss, and those were few and far between. However, they, they happen. He was always just pure class, you know, just 100% professional, um, you know, on point, and um, you can understand how he inspired so many players and other people, both in their uh, football playing and in their lives. The Melt U students have heard from a lot of people in the industry, mostly on the sales, the marketing side. How did you find your way into the, the legal side of sports? So I found my way into the legal side uh, by going to law school at the University of Alabama. And as I was 
evaluating my options of, of what I wanted to, to do as a lawyer, it so happened that Bill Battle, who played for Coach Bryant, there's a theme here, mm-hmm. um, interviewed on campus when I was a third-year law student and um, you know, knew that in the business that he was getting into and protecting trademarks and licensing that uh, he really needed um, a young lawyer and I needed a job. And so it worked out that I became a lawyer for the company, um, which is you know, not your, your typical career path. It was, frankly, at, at a good place at, at the right time. But I, I felt like I, I took the opportunity and, and ran with it because there was definitely a lot of you know, work to do to shore up and to secure the trademark rights of colleges and universities, which had never been you know, before in, in the... Uh, in the business of, you know, licensing and, and merchandising and, and marketing. Mm-hmm. However, they had these valuable trademarks that, you know, that just begged to be protected. And I had the opportunity to come in and play a part in doing that. You mentioned Bill Battle. He's one of our bosses, Vince Thompson's uh, mentors. And he was a giant in this business. He was like the first guy to say, hey, these are worth, these licenses of the existing colleges are very, very worth a while and uh, valuable. Talk a little bit about him and, and how he started his business, the collegiate licensing company, and the, which you joined later. Yeah, so, you know, after uh, his coaching career at University of Tennessee, Bill, being a very entrepreneurial person as well, um, worked for an, in, in several different businesses, one of which was um, a business that involved the selling of golf putters. And the company was just having a terrible job selling these putters until they took a license from Jack Nicholas, And then all of a sudden, they couldn't keep them in stock. So he learned a little bit about licensing at about the same time he was doing some work as representing as agent Coach Bryant. They had known each other for a long time, and he wanted Bill to come in and and help manage his his business as he was about to become the winningest football coach of all time. And so people wanted to approach Coach Bryant and do different memorabilia, do movies, do different things with Coach's image. And at times they said, well, we would also like to – produce something that has the University of Alabama logo on it. And the answer was that that's not protected. It's for free. And Bill's idea was that shouldn't be the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, These logos are very valuable. They shouldn't be given away for free. And so that helped form the idea to model a centralized licensing agency, sort of modeled after an NFL properties, but to service collegiate institutions and signed Alabama. And then by the time... He got out of the business. We were up to more than 200 colleges and universities, um, NCAA, uh, as well as the college football playoffs. You address sort of the the Wild West nature of pre-collegiate licensing. And then you guys came in. You were on the ground floor of saying, hey, these are protected. You're going to have to pay us if you want to keep using these. How difficult was it to implement that? Because as we know, when people are used to having something for free, it's tough to get them to pay for it. So how difficult was the early stage of trying to wrangle all of that together? Well, it was very difficult. Um, you know, I don't know that I was in, in certain quarters the most popular person in the world because, again, you know, we were making the pitch that we recognize that, you know, that you sell, produce and sell, you know, this logoed product, you know, much of which had been sold, you know, to the bookstore. 
there's a new sheriff in town, and if you want to continue doing what you're doing, you need to sign this license agreement, you need to pay us royalties, you need to get product liability insurance, and you need to do all of these things. Now, you know, many companies recognized that, you know, while licensing may have been, you know, new in the, in the collegiate area, they perhaps saw it coming. You know, they were familiar mm-hmm. with NFL, and it, but it was really a, a job of convincing and persuading people that, you know, look, if they want to fight it, you may want to fight it. However, you know, the way that this is going is that, you know, licensing is is here, colleges and universities have the right to protect their trademarks. Their trade, you know, product is now being sold not just in the bookstore, but, you know, with the advent and the, you know, the wide popularity, particularly of collegiate athletics, things have changed. Mm. And, you know, now product can potentially be available, you know, throughout the community, throughout the country, as opposed to just in the bookstore. So we would encourage you to get with, with the program. By the same token, we also had to go out and put some scalps on the wall. I mean, we had to show that we weren't just speaking hypothetically mm-hmm. that schools, you know, had an valuable trademark rights that they protect. We had to work in coordination with colleges and universities, willing colleges and universities that were willing to file lawsuits if someone, as they, you know, some did, basically took the position that I hear you, I don't like it, I'm not going to do it. I'll see you in court. And we did see them in court, and we're fortunate to have some big wins. Having been on the ground floor of this industry, has it surprised you at all how big sports licensing in the college world has become? I always felt that we really had a tiger by the tail. You know, I mean, there's this little company, and we represent all of these prestigious colleges and universities, and you look at what's going on, you know, and how the the leagues evolved. You know, but by the same token, um, you know, the business really started as, as very much a niche licensing business and really stayed that way for 25 years until the the consolidation started taking place. The, the IMGs and the William Morris Endeavors of the world, you know, got into the picture. And um, so, <clears throat> you know, if you would have asked me this, you know, 25 years ago, I, I probably would have said, we'll probably you know, continue to be, you know, a niche industry. We've got a good thing going here. Everybody likes each other. But I think that at some point it became evident that we could either be at the leading edge of consolidation, which we were as as sort of the first to be acquired by, you know, a bigger sports marketing entity, or, you know, we may find ourselves as, you know, the the niche company that's sort of the odd person out. And so, um, in a lot of ways, it's uh, it's incredible to, to think back over um, the, the 30 years that I've been involved in this and to see how things have, have really grown and come together in a way that you might might have envisioned in, in your mind's eye and, and just recognizing, you know, the, the broad, um, you know, market and, and affinity that fans have for their colleges and universities it's not surprising that this has become, that the collegiate segment of the market has really become a force to be reckoned with. We don't get to spend a lot of time with people from your particular field on the legal side. So I have a couple of in the weeds questions, which I know is where you spend a lot of your time. So it's a two pronger. The first is how often do you have to deal with people trying to alter part of the trademark and pass it by? So for example, taking the Alabama A and then altering part of it and then trying to pass it off without paying a licensing fee and saying, oh, what's well, different enough. So the question one is, 
How much of your time do you deal with people trying to pass off kind of false trademarks? And then the second is, this is, I guess, could go a lot of ways. Uh, what are some of the things you turn down in terms of people that want to license a product and you say, no, we can't do that. That's too far. Well, on, on the first question, yeah, you know, there have been, there are a lot of infringers that are people that are trying to kind of skirt around outer limits or, you know, beyond the outer limits of, of protectable trademark law. And we've heard many creative theories in our time, such as if I change this by 25%. Sure. And, and, you know, that really is, doesn't you know, mean anything. Yeah, in trademark law, the ultimate issue is even if you have, have changed or altered and slightly, you know, modified a logo, it's the consumer's perception. And mm-hmm. if the consumer still identifies that with the trademark owning entity, in this case, the, the university, then trademark rights are, are broad enough to capture that. One of the cases that we were involved with involved a company called Smack Apparel. And Smack Apparel specifically avoided using logo graphics. <clears throat> but they would do things you know, like show up at major um, bowl events, mm-hmm. um, and they would sell you know, product, for example, that showed a, a pinwheel of each school that it played you know, listed by state name, and then the scores of the games using the school's colors. Hmm. So in other words, they would use school colors and they would use other references to the university, to its athletic success, but basically took the position, you know, hey, we're licensed by the First Amendment. We can do this because we're not using the actual trademarks. Well, there was a case that um, a group of schools won. Basically, the, the court ruling that, you know, that the trademark protection extends not just to the actual reproduction of the trademarks, but if there is indicia that is on the product and there are colors that are used, this combination of of indicia that references the school plus the colors is enough to create confusion and we're going to rule in favor favor of the university. Hmm. But still, you know, in many instances, it's a case-by-case determination. Um, You really have to use judgment uh, and use judgment in coordination and cooperation, you know, with the individual schools, which ultimately make their decision about what battles they want to pick and which they do not want to pick. And then part two, strange requests that have come through your department to license something. You guys have said, uh, you could probably make money off that, but that's beyond the pale of what the brand will represent and, and what we can license. Yeah, I would say that, you know, a couple of items that, you know, that specifically come to mind and that have, you know, ended up sort of in the um, the, the wall of, of fame of unusual requests. <laughs> wall of be, shame, probably. <laughs> yeah, uh, would, would be lawn darts. Okay. That didn't seem like a particularly good idea. You know, maybe cornhole games mm-hmm. are okay in a, in a fun activity, but lawn darts, you know, not, not so much. And believe it or not, we have in the past... Um, had requests by companies that wanted to do um, university logoed condoms. And that, you know, for a number of the different reasons, you know, most, most schools determined that that was really not how they wanted to <laughs> be involved in branding and, and maybe to sort of round that out. Um, uh, urinal covers. Interesting. Yes. So <laughs> there are many ideas, you know, it, it is, you know, in, in the course of, you know, I'm a lawyer who has become acquainted with and seen a lot of 
incredible entrepreneurial ideas, you know, some of which have been wildly successful, others of which have ended up in the disapproval graveyard. <laughs> Bruce, you had the uh, Melt University students on the end of, end of their seats. They were very interested in what you had to say. What's some advice you would give them just in general getting into the job market in whatever field they decide to pursue? You know, I think particularly in the area of, of sports marketing and, you know, getting involved at, at that angle, it's, you know, it's all about, you know, certainly, you know, getting the, the degree, getting the good education, being very knowledgeable. But, I mean, this is just a networking world. I mean, even, um, you know, there, there are so many opportunities to get involved in organizations, um, you know, whether it be on campus, whether it be in the local community that you've just got to be persistent, you've got to network, and, um, you know, you've got to, to find that opportunity to get your foot in the door and then take advantage of that in a way that leads you to where you want to be. Well, Bruce, thank you for speaking to Melt U, and, and thank you for speaking to us as well and sharing some of your experiences. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me over here as, as an Alabama guy, especially. <laughs> While college athletics is a huge industry, going a few levels below also provides immense opportunities to make money. With tens of thousands of high schools and middle schools across the country that need equipment, uniforms, rings, and more, it's a large part of the sports market that many don't think about. Varsity Brands knows this space well, as they've grown from being a company focused on cheerleading outfits to cover all of the areas listed above. John Newby has spent 30 years with the company and has risen up the ranks, today serving as the Executive Vice President for Impact and VIP Branding. Mark and I spoke to the Memphis-based executive about dominating a niche space and the keys to longevity with the company, and he began by explaining how he ended up in the cheer industry. Yeah, it's a funny story. My wife cheered at Clemson University, and uh, she started working for Varsity Spirit. Um, she was teaching camps, but started working for Varsity Spirit in the early days when we started our uniform division. And uh, she was teaching at the time and was selling uniforms part-time, and she was so good at it that uh, she, long story short, she encouraged me to quit my management training job at West Point Pepperell, you know, in the textile industry, and work with her selling uniforms across North and South Carolina. And so uh, through her influence, I, I got started in the cheerleading business back in 1990. You know, I thought it was very interesting. You talked to the students at Melt University a lot about how to be a good leader. And you talked about the difference between dazzlers and dreamers and doomers right. and doomers. Yeah, so it, it's it's something I came up with, you know, a few years back and just, you know, people that I had run into, experiences that I had had, you know, in the hiring process of, you know, people who talk a big game, dazzlers, dreamers who, um, you know, just are looking too far out into the future, um, can't see the forest for the trees, you know, I've, I've seen that. Doomers, you know, the, the glass is half empty mentality, not taking responsibility for their actions and, and then just doers who aren't perfect, but, you know, find a way to get the job done. People that you can count on. If they tell you they're going to do something, you know, they're going to do it. It may not always be right, 
but that that's what being a doer is about and so there's there are elements of dreamers and dazzlers but the foundation of being a doer you know i found has worked really well for me when i when i make decisions on you know who i'm going to hire and who i want to surround myself with it's people who are just going to get it done and figure out a way even though it may not be right every time but you can count on them so much of what we do is influenced and defined by family. In your case, you mentioned your wife helped you get into the industry, and then you went on and had five daughters who were right. involved in Shear as well. So can you talk about their influence on you and what you've done in your career, and just in general, the way that family can help push you along? Yeah, that's interesting. Good question. I, I grew up with three sisters as wow. well. And so it was, it was a really unique experience to have daughters involved in an industry you know, that you were trying to help lead. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having that direct feedback, being at high school games, being involved in All-Star, um, you know, as a parent just gave me a, a really unique perspective. And so their, their comments, their concerns, their interests, their, you know, was, was an influence on me and some of the decisions that we made over the years. The, I mentioned starting this series of summit events. Um, my middle daughter, Blakely, was a big influence in that where I saw, you know, at a certain level, she wasn't ever going to get to the highest level. But as a senior in high school, there should be somewhere for her to go and kind of compare like skills, you know, at the same level against other teams from across the country. So, you know, there there have been some specific examples, a lot of general examples that, uh, you know, I grew up in a family of cheerleaders and, and dancers. And so we, we learned a lot together along the way. You've uh, obviously hired a lot of people in your career. What's some advice you would tell them about how to go about getting their foot in the door, getting that first job, and then building their career? That's um, it's it's tough these days, and um, you know, I think that well, it's always been tough. Actually, it probably hasn't changed that much, but um, you know, I think what's important is you know to represent yourself well. You know, find something that you have a passion for or that you can build a passion for, and then little things. I think in the beginning make a huge difference. You know, the follow up, the you know, I was I tell my daughters as they're preparing for interviews don't ever leave an interview when somebody says do you have any questions go no i don't have any questions i'm i'm good always have questions you know and so i think at the beginning doing little things you know to to get your foot in the door that separate yourself from you know others who are looking for that job those little things can go a long ways and then you know once you get inside a company i just go back to being a doer be be somebody that you know your boss can count on that you know if if he asks you to he or she asks you to get something done that they know you're going to do it and uh, you're going to ask questions along the way and and that's how you learn I can say, honestly, Mark and I do not know a lot about the cheer industry. We don't have a lot of experience in it. I'm curious what challenges you face in your business that are relatable, that, that everyone would understand, that are maybe recent things that, that you've had to tackle. The, the one thing that stands out to me is, you know, because of the market share that we have, growth is a challenge. So we, you know, we're looking for ways to kind of diversify. And one of the things that we're looking at right now is, you know, cheer and dance has been a big part of everything that we that we've done for the past several years is we're looking at band, for example. You know, is there an opportunity for us to take what we've done in, in cheerleading and dance and, you know, work with band to kind of, 
you know, update and, and maybe look at it differently, a little outside the box. And it, it's, it's a huge part of the whole, you know, game experience and, and spirit that exists at, at a lot of schools across the country. So, you know, growth is a challenge for us, ways to grow, you know, not just through diversification, but how can we broaden the base of cheerleaders and dancers across the country so we get more involved at, at a younger age. So those are, those are a couple challenges that specifically, you know, we're faced with centered around growth opportunities when, when you have a significant, you know, market share in, in space like that. One of the interesting things I think you talked to the uh, students at Mel Unit about is partnering with some of these high schools. You said you went into some of them, you talked to them, you kind of work out a situation, and then you saw improvements in places like test scores right. and attendance and, and uh, the way they behaved and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, that's through our impact program. And, you know, we created that about four years ago to find a way to partner with schools to help transform, you know, what's and not all schools need it, but most schools need some help. I would actually argue that all schools, you know, need some help at some level. And so we created this impact program to specifically address um, needs within a school that weren't being met and, you know, try to figure out a way. And we've, we've developed the program. It's been dynamic since we started of, you know, ways to elevate the student experience, to help transform schools, to do things like you mentioned, to really help make a meaningful difference. In, and it's not just us. I mean, you have to have the right principal, the right administration that's focused on that. And I use the example of Gibbs High School in St. Petersburg, Florida, where, you know, the principal there bought in hook, line, and sinker, you know, to everything that we were doing. That's where we've seen one example of many where we've seen graduation rates improve, attendance imp- improve, um, you know, test scores go up and, you know, we transform that school from a, it, it, they had a blank slate. Basically, it looked like a hospital, you know, with clean walls and beautiful campus, but the spirit was lacking there. And I think Ruben, you know, would tell you that and his, you know, his support for varsity brands and our efforts there, you know, coupled with, with his focus and energy, you know, really transformed an entire school. And we've seen the results. You've had the opportunity to spend almost 30 years with the same company, and that's increasingly rare now. But for people who might have the opportunity to move up within an organization as opposed to jumping from place to place, what have you seen are the advantages of staying with one company and working your way up? Well, for me, and I've, I've played different roles in different divisions within our organization, it's just the, the knowledge and the experience that you gain from being involved in the same, even though it's different aspects in the same industry um, or the same company. And um, so getting to know customers, you know, as their needs change and develop. And I mean, what's kept me with Varsity for so long is just the culture that we built at Varsity Brands. Uh, you know, centered around, uh, you know, elevating the student experience and, you know, working with people who I know and love. It's like my second family. And so if you can find a company like that, um, that you look forward to going to work every day after, you know, 28 or 30 years, I would encourage you to stay with that organization. And, uh, you know, it's the grass isn't always greener. You know, if, if opportunities, you know, pop up, pursue them. But, you know, if you find something that you really love to do with people who you really enjoy working with, then, you know, my encouragement would be to stick with it and, you know, get different experiences within that organization. You talk to the students about how, you know, life is hard. You're going to have challenges. You're going to have ups and downs. It's how you, uh, 
react to that is right. what's the most important thing. Right, right. And that's probably the most important lesson that, that I've shared with my kids, that I share with people that I work with and manage is, you know, the older you get, the more you realize things are going to happen and, and you don't have any control over those things. The only thing you control is how you respond. And it's, you know, sometimes much easier said than done. And it's, it's almost a practice that you have to get into a discipline to not respond or overreact quickly, but, you know, really give it some thought, you know, look at the different sides and, you know, that comes with maturity a lot and it's, it, it doesn't come natural to me. So it's, it's been a discipline that I've been trying to develop over the years to, you know, not wait for bad things to happen. That's that, you know, can kind of be confusing when you're talking mm -hmm. about the events that are going to happen in your life. But, um, you know, the, the one thing we can control is how we respond, you know, when events happen, good and bad. So a lot of, in a lot of cases, you can't control the specific situation that you're in. Um, but as I overemphasize, you know, with, with the students, you, you have 100% control of how you respond. Leading right into that, that's one aspect of your lead the way mantra. Right. I guess an actionable plan for them to try and latch on to. Can you tell us a little bit more about lead the way and, and why that's important to you? Yeah, you know, so I, I took... I took lead and broke it down. You know, the, the L for me stands for love. And what that means is you can either love what you do or, you know, if you're lucky enough, do what you love. Right. And so you have those two choices and uh, you, you'll end up living or leading a miserable career life. If you keep looking for something, you know, different or better, sometimes you just have to embrace what you're doing. And so for me, I've been lucky you know, and, and I love what I do and the people that I work with. So the E was about excellence and, you know, just always trying to get better and, and go faster. I learned that from our, you know, my mentor and our CEO, Jeff Webb is, Hey, let's celebrate all the successes that we've had, but we can do better, right? You know, let's talk about how, how we could improve. Um, and then adversity, as we mentioned, you know, that's things are going to happen to you that, that could set you back and that, you know, could, uh, in some cases send you in a spiral in a different direction. And you, you're going to, you're going to have to learn how to deal with those things that don't go your way. Uh, that was a, and then D was about, you know, being a doer. And Mark mentioned that the dazzlers and, and dreamers and doomers and then doers. And that's, I've just, I've found a lot of success you know, in my career from surrounding myself with people who are just going to flat out get the job done that you can trust. And, and again, aren't always going to get it right, but, you know, will admit it when they don't and look to improve. And I find myself surrounding um, myself with more and more people who are just going to get it done. So. You talk to the students about being open to constructive criticism. Everybody likes to get that pat on the back. You're doing great. Right. You're doing great. You're doing great. But there is some advantage to saying, hey, these are some things to work on and not take it personally, but you use it as an improving point of view. Yeah, I think that's how that is presented is is the key, right? So it's the presenter of the constructive criticism that, that I think can make a huge difference in, in how it's taken, especially at a younger age when you're getting that, you know, it, it, you learn a lot over the years and, and, you know, become a little more open to, you know, constructive feedback, but sometimes it's hard to hear. And so how you present that, you know, can make a big difference, whether it's constructive or not. So, um, I, I guess that's, it's good to hear and it's, good to have things that you can work on so you can improve and get better, but how it's presented, I think, makes a big difference. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us here and sharing some of your experience and helping uh, shape the next generation through Melt U.
Yeah, it's great. And congratulations to Vince and, and Mark and Adam, you guys here for what you're doing for some of these young people. I think it's, uh, you know, it, it, we share that mission, you know, and, and you guys are doing a great job here. So love this program and happy to be a part of it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. We're now available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud, so be sure to subscribe on the app of your choice and please leave review to help us continue to grow. Until next week, I'm Adam Schick. Thanks for joining us for The Struggle is Real, presented by Melt.